This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. Notre Dame University professors Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko are here today. They are the innovative philosophers behind one of the most popular college classes in the country. Their method of teaching ancient wisdom for the modern world arrives as a newly published book titled The Good Life Method. It's well-timed as the new year invites us to consider life changes. Real Fiction Radio is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, novelists, and change makers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel reportage, stories, and social impact. You can also head over to realfictionradio.com for more information about today's guests and past episodes. I'll be back in a moment with Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. My guests today are Megan Sullivan, philosophy professor at Notre Dame University. She is the director of God and the Good Life program and the author of the book Time Biases. And Paul Blaschko is here. He is assistant teaching professor in philosophy at Notre Dame and director of curriculum of God and the Good Life program. This course has become so popular and influential that the logical next step was a book for a broader audience. This new book is titled The Good Life Method, uh, published in the new year, a time when we take a pause and think about our life goals. Joining me from South Bend, Indiana are Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. Welcome to Real Fiction. Thanks, Lori. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, the first sentence in the good life method is we all have goals. And your book is a kind of framework to guide us in the pursuit of a fulfilling and satisfying life. So in the opening pages, a question is posed. Can people learn what it takes to have a good life? Now, you're both putting this to the test in your own lives and in the classroom. And as I just mentioned, your class taught at Notre Dame, it's called God and the Good Life. It's that kind of course that crashes the website during open enrollment. When did you know that this class was really resonating with students and that it might be ready for a broader audience? We started teaching this course in fall of 2016. So Paul was a PhD student at Notre Dame and I was a faculty member. I just come back from research leave and uh, in the year before, we'd been thinking really seriously about how we wanted to just change the way that we introduced people to philosophy to make it a lot less about learning the ideas of dead people and much more about the exercises that those people found really meaningful in their own lives that we thought are very relevant to ours. And if you kind of put yourself in the Wayback Machine, we were, uh, we were setting up and piloting the course in August 2016, right before the world changed, at least the world mm. in the United States changed out from under us. Um, we had a really momentous election. We had a lot of really interesting questions about free speech on college campuses and about whether or not colleges were still in the business of caring for students' souls. 
So we kind of walked into a situation. I don't think we, we're not great at predicting the future, but we walked into this right idea at the right time with uh, the right kind of intentions. And the course took off really fast. I think it surprised Paul and I and all of the other folks that were involved in our teaching and planning team, how very quickly we realized that there was this need that we were starting to meet for our students. Uh, so the class started growing really rapidly and that generated media. Uh, we got a really nice write-up from the Chronicle of Higher Education. It was like, if you want to see something really different happening in philosophy, look at what's going on at Notre Dame. And once that that really got cooking, maybe a, a year after we launched the course, I started getting a lot of inquiries from groups saying, hey, we know you teach this course to 18, 19-year-olds. Would you do a version of it for our book club? Would you do a version of it for these adults who are well-established in their careers but are having really big questions about what the meaning of their life is and who never got a chance to study philosophy in college? And that's when Penguin approached us and they were like, we think that there might be a big unmet need that's way beyond college campuses with thinking about philosophy and the good life. Would you guys want to try to take the lessons that you've been working on with Notre Dame students and, and, and try to reframe them for people in various life stages who are, who are finding themselves facing these challenges right now? Mm, that That's fascinating because the good life method encourages us to study philosophy and with a focus on virtue ethics. Now that's pretty intimidating. Um, but what you suggest in this book is that rather than reaching for a trendy of the moment source on how to optimize every moment of our lives or how to declutter our closets, maybe we really are ready to ask some deeper questions and wrestle with hard ideas. And when you when you make that case, there's a case for the enduring wisdom of ancient Greece and Rome and the major world religions. So if we are ready to dip in, what is our first assignment? Yeah, so the way that I start out God and the Good Life when I teach it here on campus at Notre Dame is, um, you know, I, I sort of ask it almost tongue in cheek. I ask my students, uh, how many of you want to be happy? And of course, everybody raises their hand. Uh, nobody wants to be unhappy. Maybe there's like one in the back who wants to argue about it. It's like, you know, kind of looking grumpy. But the thing that I think is is really fascinating and uh, just really thought provoking from the ancient Greeks is uh, that they conceive of happiness in a way uh, that's, you know, can be radically different from the way that we think about it. You know, we tend to think of happiness as uh, an affective state, as an emotion, as something that we feel you know, that there are books written about subjective well-being and how to increase it. And those are great. And the ancient Greeks agree, like there, there is this emotional aspect. Uh, but there's something deeper. And, and for Aristotle, um, this is really the key. This is the place to start, right? To think about what happiness consists in. You know, we start out the book uh, by talking about goals that we might have. Aristotle thinks happiness is your ultimate goal. It's the thing that mm. explains every single action that you're undertaking. Everything you do is ultimately going to sort of bottom out in, in this explanation of, you know, why are you doing it? Well, because I want to be happy, right? So to, so to understand the nature of happiness and, you know, not, not to just take the ancient Greek notion of happiness, of, of eudaimonia, uh, and, and take what Aristotle and Plato say about it and say, okay, well, that must be the goal. But to really, you know, grapple with different frameworks, to, to grapple with different conceptions of it uh, from throughout history, from uh, our own time. I think that's the place to start, really to start thinking, you know, seriously about, okay, what is happiness consistent? And does my life, does the way that I'm, you know, sort of trying to embody that, does that actually line up with what on reflection, I think a good happy life uh, would actually look like? 
You know, when I was wading through this book, I found it so relatable in large part because of the written apologies or the sort of Socratic apology that uh, comes, that is woven into the book. Can you explain what uh, an apology is, a Socratic apology is, how it is a powerful tool in pursuing the good life and why you wanted to build this into the structure of the book? So one of the things that we do with our students here at Notre Dame is we ask them at the start of the semester, like, what are your goals for this new semester, for this new year? And, and adults do the same thing. Like, I, you know, this it's 2022. My goal is to Marie Kondo all of my closets and to try to eat fruit every single day and to get more sleep. And philosophy comes in and it takes those goals and then asks the question, like, why? Why do you care so much about being so much more organized in your life or managing your time so much more efficiently? Like, what do you want that extra time for? Then it pushes us to ask these deeper and deeper questions about what's really driving us and what we really love. And we ask our students to spend a lot of time going through that process of trying to get deeper and deeper about what it is that they, that they ultimately think is going to be the shape of an amazing life for them. And, then, and we read philosophers, obviously, that give theories on that along the way. I think one of the things that was really wonderful for me and Paul working on this book is we've given that assignment to thousands of Notre Dame students right now. I mean, we spend 14 weeks coaching 18, 19-year-olds on crafting this apology, which is a 12-page written-out statement about the things that they think are their really foundational goals and vision of the good life and their reasons for thinking about that and what's been going on in their life so far that's pointed them towards those goals. Paul and I had given that assignment to, again, thousands of Notre Dame students, we had never really sat down and written it out for ourselves. We'd always talked with students using examples in class and as we're coaching them through this process of reflection, but actually doing it on our own lives, this book was an occasion for us to sit down and try to, to figure out what our answers were. And I think that is one, one of the transformative parts of the book is we're pretty vulnerable the same way our students are often really vulnerable in class. We, we share about finances in our family. We share about what it means to be a parent. Uh, we share about how we think about difficult topics like suffering and death. And those are conversations that honestly we had never had quite openly with our family members or with each other. And our students and the readers get to see like what it is to try to take these philosophical ideas and really implement them in a messy 21st century life. Yes. The stories and the apologies are kind of broken up throughout the book so that you get these beautiful like landing pads to think about how to relate the the philosophy with a real world problem. And there's another element to this I'd like to ask about. I'm still thinking about this. Um, it's the concept of learning how to tell a morally thick story. Um I, I, I'm, I'm really still thinking about this passage, but could you explain to listeners, what is a morally thick story? Why is it important? Oh, yeah. So uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book uh, deals with Elizabeth Anscombe and the way in which she thinks storytelling is important uh, morally, that, that, that it's a really important way of interrogating uh, our motivations, our intentions, uh, and making sure that, that, you know, what we're doing really reflects uh, what we think we ought to be doing. So this idea of, of, you know, a morally thick story is one that comes out of, of her work and comes out of the work of, of Bernard Williams. And I guess the basic idea is something like this. Um, look, we tell stories all the time to explain our action. You know, if I, if I show up late to a meeting, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I walk in and I say, ah, the traffic was so bad. And yeah, yeah. I'm using that story as a way of, of excusing myself, of saying, look, the world frustrated my desire to be here on time, to sort of fulfill my obligation or my duty. Other times we, we tell stories to take responsibility. You know, so I might say like, you guys, I, I left late. I'm so sorry. I stopped to get coffee because I'm selfish and, and here I am. I, I let the group mm-hmm. down. Um, now, one thing that's really interesting and important is that these stories can be more or less accurate, right? They can be more or less true. Uh, and so, so for Anscombe, one of the, the crucial moral virtues that we can develop is, is the ability and the desire really to tell morally true stories about our actions. Sometimes, you know, this is really easy because it turns out like, look, I have this tendency of just always telling stories that make me look generous and make me look kind. You know what? I'm doing that to kind of cover for something. I, I, I've got a vice or something that I'm covering for. And maybe, yeah, maybe it's not easy to do in that case, but it's sort of clear what you should do. Sometimes, though, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And so, you know, one of the big cases that, that Anscombe uh, takes on is, is she was very critical of Harry Truman's decision to drop the atomic bomb on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and she thinks, look, there's different ways of telling that story. And, and the way that sort of the official narrative goes is, well, look, you know, uh, this is a thing that we had to do in order to prevent uh, further loss of life, et cetera. And she just encourages us to really dive into the facts to dive into the historical narrative and say, is that right? Is that true? Like, is, is that where our intentions uh, are? And, and if it is, is it the right thing to do, right? Is, is it ever okay to do something uh, that you know is, is evil in order that good might come of it? And so she uses that storytelling as, as a really deep way of, of you know, morally evaluating human action at different scales. And I, I, I think it's just one of the most fascinating ideas you know, to come out of the 20th century in, in philosophy. How do your students react to um, that element of the assignment process? Is this something that develops over the course of the, the class? Do they come in with drafts and say, mm, I'm not sure how deep or vulnerable I want to go? How is that interaction between you and the students? I mean, for me, you know, that, that, that vulnerability, because it's a very vulnerable thing, as you're mentioning, to tell those stories and to, to dive in and actually interrogate your own motives um, that's something that that frequently develops over the course of the semester. So, you know, in the first quarter of the semester, students are kind of, they're coming in, they're thinking like, is this like another class that I've taken? Or, you know, is this going to be abstract and boring? What, what's going on here? I find, you know, it's really important uh, in my own teaching to be vulnerable and to kind of take that first step. So in the same way that in the book, you know, Megan and I are sharing uh, some stories uh, from our own apologies, from our own life story. Um, this is something that, that I'll do in class. And, and you know, I'll, I'll get pretty vulnerable uh, when we talk about the problem of evil uh, and whether an all-good God could allow the kind of suffering that we experience in the world. I, I'll frequently just tell students for about, you know, 10 minutes of that class period uh, a story from my own life about when my son was born and we thought um, he might have uh, cancer. We weren't sure. He, he had a, a mysterious growth in his mouth. And we weren't sure what it was. And we spent you know, several weeks in the, the NICU and then down at uh, a children's hospital. Uh, and the way in which that experience changed and shaped the way that I think philosophically about evil, about, about God. Um, and and I, I find, you know, when I've opened up about things like that, uh, my students just suddenly want to come and talk about these things. Um, and they'll come and talk to me about them. They'll, they'll talk to their TAs about them, uh, but they'll especially talk to each other about them. One cool aspect of the class is that, you know, we have students in peer dialogue 
uh, groups mm-hmm. so that they actually meet with their peers and they, you know, will share stories. And, you know, from those leaders, we, we have leaders that we train and, and um, they're undergraduates as well. From those leaders, you know, they'll come back to us and tell us these stories about, gosh, like, you know, halfway through the semester, like this is where we kind of landed and, and, and this is what the students are sharing. And it's, you know, it's different for every group, different every semester. But I, I do find that, you know, that that kind of trust that you can develop uh, you know, between between people over the course of a, a fairly short semester, um, when you're willing to to go into those stories and, and to kind of personally invest, um, yeah, it's, just, it's it's very powerful. Something that we realized both teaching the class and in people that we engaged as we were writing the book, and if we've got one takeaway for maybe reluctant philosophy readers, this kind of practice of learning how to examine your own life and learning how to understand your own moral responsibility. It's something that you don't do by yourself. You do it with friends and peers and family members and loved ones by having interesting philosophical conversations, sometimes easy ones and fun ones and sometimes hard ones. And uh, it's a skill that you develop with other people in your life. One thing we do in every chapter of the book is try to give people some questions or experiments that they can perform with people that they're close to to help each other grow in some of these philosophical skills. So it's not the, it's not the kind of self-examination you do locked up in your room just by yourself. It's something that you do with people that you care about. And that's been where it's really been transformative for our students. And one of the things, you know, as you mentioned that, Megan, I remember a passage when uh, when an individual is engaging in this kind of, let's call it an experimentation to see if if they can have deeper conversations, you actually give uh, a kind of an out. If you're talking with someone who is absolutely closed up, doesn't want to have the conversation, you know, you can you can call. There are times when you can call BS, step back, and um, start again. Absolutely. Yeah, we, in the first chapter of the book, introduce the readers to Socrates, the kind of founding grandfather of philosophy. And all of the writings that we have about Socrates asking his good life questions are in the form of basically plays or dialogue. Socrates is walking around one day and he runs into some friends and they just kind of fall into this great open-ended philosophical conversation about like what courage is or what justice really is. Sometimes they're drunk, like they're more, more often than not in some of the Socratic dialogues, their inhibitions are lowered a little bit. They're at a really fun party or a dinner. Um, Socrates is always looking for those opportunities when our guard is down to start to do philosophy. It's probably, he would probably say that it's not always the best opportunity to ask some of these questions if it's on Twitter or if everybody's already really fired up about uh uh, something in the news and it's Christmas Eve and people are not really willing to listen to each other. And so some of the art of philosophy that we learned from Socrates is identifying these really great venues to start asking these questions with people that we care about. And it might be like it's a long car ride with your mom, uh, or it might be that it is at a party where things have gotten like fun and lighthearted. But but you don't always have to be in this questioning and interrogating mode. And a, a large part of the good life is also just appreciating and attending to people without trying to change them. Yes. And I'll tell you, when uh, Paul was talking about the uh, aspect of storytelling, it also brought to mind another section of the book that I really loved. Uh, it, it's a section called Cultivating Loving Attention Through Literature. And I found this really kind of you know, comforting and reassuring that maybe we're doing some of this now. We don't realize that we're exploring the inner lives. And I, what I love to do on this program is 
explore the intersection between the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories. And what you do in that section, again, it's called Cultivating Loving Attention Through Literature, uh, you write that the brain scans of readers and of those witnessing the actions and episodes of another reveal that the same parts of our brains light up when we see another perform an action as they do when we perform it ourselves. So there are these little mirror neurons that are firing up. And Megan, you described as having read uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, as sort of opening a mental door to understanding fathers in difficult situations. So I'd like to ask you about your own experience in reading literature. Do you do you assign certain novels or encourage your students to look at literature a little differently? Let me just comment briefly on the road. One, I didn't even know this about Paul until we'd gotten to writing this part of the book that it's both one of our favorite novels and has both affected us in mm. different ways. And that I, I'm the kind of person that just like eats books. <laughs> you know, I get them from the library that morning and I stay up all night to finish them. And the road was like that for me. I will never know what it's like to be my father. Uh, and I love him, but, and, uh, but a lot of his like inner life and good life is mysterious to me. I think the way a lot of parents' lives are mysterious to their children. And I vividly remember the day I read that book. I did it in one go. I was living in New Jersey at the time. I was in graduate school. I definitely had other things I should have been working on. But picking up that book and hearing McCarthy describe what it feels like to be a father who really loves your children and, and is afraid that you, you know, you can't provide for them. Like you can't do everything to make their lives good. It, it does have this amazing effect of vividly allowing us into somebody else's mind, uh, at least, at least being able to simulate it or Cormac McCarthy's version of my father in a way that you think like, Oh, now I understand like what it feels like on the inside to love your kids. And there are, the, the Greek philosophers knew that this was something that was really special about human minds. Aristotle says that the difference between like humans and cows is that we have this capacity to perceive that other people live, that other people like have these fears and wants and hopes that are slightly different from our own, but are also very identifiable. And literature totally gives us access to that when sometimes the real people in our lives don't know how to give us access to it. So it's extraordinarily powerful. We assign way too many hard philosophy texts in our class, I think right now to give uh, novels, though maybe we should. We definitely talk a lot about art and literature. We, uh, when we teach existentialism, at least when I teach existentialism, we show uh, the Alex Honnold free solo film and clips from that and have our students just try to like feel what it's like to be somebody undertaking that big adventure. I think philosophy when it's at its best is in dialogue with that kind of evidence about our emotions and hopes and dreams that we get most profoundly through literature and art. Yeah, I, I love that. I think too, stories have a really interesting place in philosophical inquiry, even in the history of philosophy. I mean, uh, Megan was mentioning earlier, uh, a lot of the uh, early philosophical texts were written in the form of, of dialogues. Almost everything that we know about Socrates is, is through Plato's dialogues. And, you know, even in contemporary philosophy, we'll, we'll often offer thought experiments, these kind of short narratives that are meant to, to focus your mind on a particular question. Um, but I think, I, I think having the richness, you know, and again, this brings in sort of this idea of, of um, having morally thick stories or narratives uh, that can 
display sort of a life in all of its particularity and and the reasoning behind you know why somebody does something that that might otherwise just baffle us but you know we might find it unintelligible that's an indispensable tool you know in the in the class period that we uh, bring up Immanuel Kant and this idea of, of you know whether there are certain certain actions that are absolutely morally prohibited we read this short story uh, the ones who walk away from Ameles. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly but and we have our students you know reflect this is a, a an Ursula K Le Guin story and it's science fictiony but but it just it sort of makes real in a, in a, a way that philosophical argument doesn't always or or you know it, it allows us to kind of go back and forth and consider the abstract against uh, the lived reality of, of the characters in that story. And that can allow us to kind of come to understanding that we might not otherwise. And I, th- I think this is a, a really powerful practice that we can try out even in sort of day-to-day conversations with other people. Uh, I'll sometimes reach a point with my mom if we're talking about, you know, politics or we're talking about um, you know, uh, sort of arguments that, that that we've been having for years and years, reach a point where I'll think like, there's just nothing else that I can say. And there's nothing else she can say that would make us uh, more sympathetic to the other person's view. Um, and in those moments, I'll sometimes, you know, retreat back and just start asking about her life story. Like, what, what was it about your life that, you know, made you think in the way that you do now? Or, or tell me a story that, you know, can kind of help illustrate that. Um, and those stories can actually help me come to appreciate, you know, she's coming from a place of, of uh, truth seeking or yeah. she, she really wants to understand. And, and that's certainly something that we share in common. And, and, you know, so for me, stories, they can play many different roles in philosophy. But one of the most important is they can kind of unblock uh, these, these massive sort of uh, intractable, intractable questions when we're uh, sometimes disagreeing, especially with people that we really care about and love. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I want to remind listeners that my guests today are Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. Their new book is titled The Good Life Method. We're having a conversation about um, why it's important to study philosophy and consider virtue ethics. And Paul and Megan, as I think about what what we're talking about today and how fascinated I am about uh, the concept of telling morally thick stories, there is something that I struggle with, and I'd like to get your take on this. After all of our sort of introspection and contemplating um, how we might move forward to have a better life, and again, the goal of virtue ethics, as you explained in the book, is very action-oriented. One of the things that's happening, in, in at least in the United States right now, is uh, relates to the chapter of taking a leap of faith. And right now, there is a resignation trend, resigning from work trend. And there's even a hashtag, I I quit, and people are posting their stories. So when I think about this, these life changes and trying to find the, uh, the path to a better life, I really wonder about how we connect these leaps into the unknown and these declarations that sometimes play out on social media platforms that feel rather performative. So my question is, where is the line between a leap of faith that is really good for your mental health and your mental well-being and something that might be reckless? So one of the philosophers we introduced readers to in the book is one of my all-time favorites, William James. He was an American philosopher writing at the beginning of the last century, and he writes about this idea of leaps of faith. And one of the puzzles that he's embroiled in, which feels very much alive in 2022 as well, 
is how do you tell when somebody is making a big life change, quitting their job, taking a major relationship risk, when they're doing it in a reckless or foolhardy way, or when they're doing it in an overly rationalistic way, like they're just always kind of calculating the odds and the better consequences and making their decisions accordingly. Neither of those seem like good ways to live your life out of faith. But James thinks that there's this third way where sometimes life deals us crossroads. We find ourselves at a crossroads where we really can't do the math and figure out what we want or need, but we still have to make a decision from a point of authenticity. And so we go through examples like this in the business world and in religious contexts in the book, but one example readers might be facing uh, this year as they think about whether they want to change their jobs is like they, they know maybe they have the option of staying in their current job or quitting and looking for something new. They find themselves at this crossroads. They can't like do the math and just figure out whether they're going to be happy after this experience because they just don't know. It's uncertain. It's uncertain what new jobs are going to come about. It's uncertain whether they're going to love their new boss or their new coworkers or uh, might even be deeply uncertain for us what the next goal is, like what the next meaningful thing is that we're seeking in our life. So it's a genuine leap. You really are at the edge. How should you make your decision? One thing that James says we ought to do is figure out a little bit the story that's led us up to this point and which of the things that we might leap to feel authentic, like really have to do with who we are as individuals and which of the things seem forced on us from the outside. So one example he talks a lot about is deciding to join a new religion. And he, for an individual, for like me, for instance, I could decide 2022 is going to be a year where I'm going to explore a new religion. Options that feel really live for me might be atheism or different forms of Christianity. Deciding this year to become a practicing or devout Hindu, that's not really a live option. Nothing in my life has prepared me to think about that option so far. I haven't, um, I haven't exposed myself to that kind of culture. If I suddenly announced on Facebook that I was quitting my current religion to join that one, it would look really weird. It wouldn't be continuous with a good life. Likewise, if you see like everybody's quitting their jobs right now, maybe I should do it. But you don't have a story about uh, what work means to you right now in your life. Why do you work in any job? Then you probably don't have any idea about what it would be to authentically jump into a new one. Like it might make a lot of sense for your friends to be going through this employment change, but maybe for you, you need to hit pause and think a little bit about what's the underlying goal that you're trying to achieve for your life and with your family here. And and that's where William James really you know helps us kind of cut through some of these false dichotomies that we keep getting presented. I will say that what's remarkable about the book is that you take a look at at this issue in terms of corporate responsibility, faith, the good life. Um, you've really wrestled with this and have analyzed distinctions between some of our biggest corporate successes and failures coming out of Silicon Valley. And you you allow us to look at these kinds of lessons from perhaps a, a company like Apple versus um, Theranos, which is in the news right now. Why did you want to look at uh, corporate life uh, and build that into the book? Some of the starkest examples uh, of, of leaps of faith actually come to us uh, from the business world, especially nowadays when you know, figures like Steve Jobs are, are, are so, you know, held up as, as such exemplars and heroes. Um, there's this idea that, you know, uh, if you believe in yourself, if you have enough passion, if you have enough 
um, you know, time and energy devoted to, to some enterprise. You can you can make things happen in the world that that seem impossible, and you know sometimes that works out. And, and reading the story of of how that comes to be is is fascinating, and you actually learn a lot about kind of the, the deeper story. Um, uh, when you do that, I, I read Steve Jobs's uh, biography, the Walter Isaacson uh, biography, and you, you you learn a lot about you know where that confidence comes from and and where it's sometimes you know misplaced. Um, so that's right. One of the cases that we consider uh, in the book is the Theranos case, and I think uh, one of the reasons that that I'm so drawn to that story is you know it it, it illustrates this kind of tension that I think we all experience, which is. The desire to have this ex- extraordinary self-confidence to think like I can go out and, and sort of do anything in the world, and the tension that that there is uh, between that and a sense of of responsibility uh, and of humility, really. So for me, stories like Theranos are just incredible uh, illustrations of of when these virtues uh, come into conflict, and and when you put that in the context of a life story of, of somebody who's actually having to make these decisions and wrestle with these things and wrestle with, you know, all of these other um, psychological dynamics. I mean, I mean, you know, you're constantly like experiencing self-doubt if you're a founder out in Silicon Valley, I'm sure. Uh, and so on the one hand, it's, it's, you know, this question of, well, how do you overcome that to make sure that you're fulfilling your potential as a company uh, without, you know, overstepping these, these bounds of humility and, and of responsibility. Um, so for me, you know, that case in particular just brings all of those dynamics into play uh, in a way that's, it's just really illuminating. I think you're right. We t- and we tend to hold up these stories as this ultimate metric for optimizing life and how to spend every minute of a day and how to how to lean in perhaps too much. So I'd like to cycle back just for a minute. The full title of the book is The Good Life Method: Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. And you both describe yourselves as religious Catholics. You've been studying philosophy for years. You came to the Catholic faith in very different ways. And you and in your conversations and in the book, you welcome all perspectives. You welcome skeptics. I'd love to know what, what are your classroom debates like? I think one thing that's just been transformative of my teaching and my personal appreciation of philosophy, it's come from this class and this commitment we developed early on to ask like the direct hot question on our minds rather than trying to make it really academic. So, so you can, we, I've been teaching Nietzsche for years. You can have your students read Nietzsche and have this debate about what exactly a religion is and do it in this really indirect way. Or you can come in with the really direct rip from the headlines question that's on your mind is CrossFit a religion? Uh, like, could it be the case that joining a really great gym movement is going to be the thing that answers all of your deepest needs this year? And we do it with a, I always do it with a bit of humor, but that's a question like, you know, that's a, that's a question I could talk about with my neighbors. I could talk about with my friends at my CrossFit mm. gym and with my friends at church and one that feels really like alive. And one of the things that we have done really intentionally over the years is build up all of these direct case-based questions that are the door that then opens you to start to talk about Nietzsche. And so what we do in class, and uh, we, we do get some flack from this from other philosophers who think that the, the enterprise should be uh, working your way through history up until the present moment rather than starting with the burning question of the day. But 
we come in guns blazing in the first five minutes of each lecture being like, today we're going to talk about whether you can be in a religion even if there's no God. The question I want us to have debated by the end of this 50 minutes is, here's what we know about what people are saying about the role that their gym plays in their life right now. Does this meet the standards for being a religion and what are the best arguments? And we just, you know, go, go for the direct hit or the direct hit in a particular student's life being like, what, you know, do you think religion is going to play any important role in your adult life? What does that question even mean to you? And, and then use that as a way of recruiting the philosophers to help them answer the question that we've, you know, we really want the answer to today. Uh, and that's just so much more fun. It, it opens up new ways of thinking about philosophy. It also helps you remember every single day why you love knowing about philosophy, because it's there to help make these conversations so much more deep and interesting. Um, we don't have to sell philosophy if we've already got the great question to do it for us. I love that. I think there's going to be a call for a live streaming of these just classroom discussions. Paul, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. So... One of my commitments as a teacher, uh, and especially, you know, teaching philosophy, which I think is, is, is one of those subjects where students can come in and, you know, because we, we don't often teach philosophy in high school or earlier, students have very different uh, background experiences with it. You might come in and think, well, philosophy is just, you know, it's just opinions. It's kind of mushy. It's, it's whatever people think. Uh, and so one, one of my strongest commitments here is, you know, I come into the classroom and I tell students where I'm coming from. And I do that, you know, by sharing parts of my story, my apology, um, you know, personally sort of illustrating uh, my take on some of the, the questions that we're asking, but also by just, you know, telling them when I, when I think some argument is, is really compelling and something we really should wrestle with. Um, I find, you know, I, I struggled coming to that sort of view. I thought at the beginning of my teaching career, I thought like, oh, I need to present all of this stuff in an extremely neutral, objective way. I don't want my students to know what I think. Um, and I found, you know, when, when I did that, actually the, the problem that I mentioned a second ago where students would walk away thinking, well, you know, there were eight different views that were uh, expressed and, and they were all expressed equally. And I guess people just don't have, you know, any sort of commitments here. Um, I, I found that problem was worse on, on, on that mode of presentation. So, so I come in and, and you know, I, I really try to bring the philosophers to life, uh, all the philosophers that we talk about, and illustrate why what they're saying makes a big difference for somebody who's thinking really seriously about living a good life. Uh, and I find that, that, again, once you do that, once you establish that trust, students are very willing to open up and actually start disagreeing and say, you know, they'll say, you've talked a lot about Aristotle, but Aristotle seems a little elitist. I mean, you know, focusing on the intellect and contemplation, like, you know, why think that that is, is the ultimate sort of function, the ultimate good life. Uh, and then we can really jump in and, and have a really good conversation. And I'll say too, I, I will often leave the class um, with my mind having been changed by my students or, or, you know, having different views opened up that, I really just hadn't thought about in the way that they were, you know, presenting in, in class. So um, I find that to be a really fruitful way of engaging as well. So this is a class that you've been teaching for a few years. It's it's continuing to evolve. And what I'm hearing is that with each fresh batch of students, there's always something new that you're learning. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, this semester, for instance, one of the students that's helping us teach uh, the course and, and, and sort of serving as a, a peer dialogue leader, he came to me and he said, hey, I really, you know, I feel very strongly about post-Holocaust theology. And I think there's a deep philosophical element to it. Uh, and I would love to bring that into the class. And I had just not thought a ton about contemporary Jewish philosophy. 
um, I said, you know, well, let's do it. Let's like, you know, let's write something up. Um, and so we did, you know, over the course of the semester, we would have meetings and he'd come and bring these texts and we, we you know, we, we shaped them into the form that we might be able to give a, our students. Uh, and through that experience, it, it opened up a whole area of philosophy that I, you know, independently, I don't know if I would have stumbled across it. And now I am just fascinated. I'm just, you know, uh, reading uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel and just thinking like, gosh, like there's there's real substantive uh, uh, stuff here and, and uh, you know, stuff that I'm incredibly glad to have been introduced to. Um, so this is something, yeah, I find every semester things like this happen and, and I'm just so grateful for it. As we started this conversation, the, the new year is a often a, a reflection point to um, think about how we want to live our lives in a more meaningful way. And the timing of this book the good life method is um, is ready for uh, ready for reading, ready for contemplation. I might ask one final question um, for those who are ready to to take uh, kind of take a dip into this, take do some experimenting. What is the best daily practice that someone can um, can take or experiment with to get on the path to the good life? One of the things that I really love about Aristotle uh, and the Roman philosophers that all kind of followed in Plato and Aristotle's footsteps, they really do dial into daily habits and not, not in the like Marie Kondo, it is essential to the good life that you fold your underwear a certain way. <laughs> uh, but in the thought that uh, we, a lot of times we have this vision for the kind of person that we want to be, but we, we don't find ways to match that into our day-to-day habits. And so one that I has been on my mind a lot coming into this year is I, I want to work on the virtue of love and relationship this year, especially after us having spent the last two years being socially distant uh, or being in our pods, like only being around and caring and attending to people who are really close to us rather than people who are one or two steps removed. So you think that's my big philosophical goal, and I understand why that, why cultivating the ability in myself to love other people who are strangers to me might be like something I need to work on, and why that seems really urgent given what I've just been through. But then you think, okay, what's the daily habit that's going to connect that to that? And it might be as simple as you know, most of the ways I encounter people, strangers right now, are through email and Zoom. These really detached ways of interacting with them. Maybe I create this daily practice of trying to include something um, like personal that I notice about somebody or a personal expression of gratitude in like at least two or three emails I send to strangers every day. Mm. And that's something that I reflect on and I take pride in when I'm able to do it. And if I find myself really struggling or going through a dry period in my ability to do that, trying to think about what like habits could, could help support that or keep nudging me in that direction. And that's a way of building this complex philosophical idea of loving attention into something as like, as banal as email practices. Um, but, but also, you know, maybe the place to start, cause that's something I have control over every day. Love that. Paul, anything yeah. you want to add to that? So in the book, late in the book, actually, uh, we talk about the Stoics, and uh, the Stoics are really kind of having a moment. There's, there's uh, our culture, you know, uh, actually there's quite a bit of, of resources now um, bringing ancient Stoicism, you know, from Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus uh, into um, sort of more digestible uh, forms. And I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. But one of the things that the Stoics really 
emphasized is that you know we often live such active lives and and um, you know in the book we, we talk about the life of action and how important it is to be setting ourselves good active goals uh, but we often live such active lives that that we can lose focus and lose track of the the real sort of good things the concrete good things that give our lives value and meaning and so you know, one of the ways that, that that has showed up for me in in my reflection and my daily practice is, you know, just just taking a minute to realize how important my family is to me. Uh, I've got you know three little kids, one, three, and five, and and just taking you know some time every day to allow my mind to be refocused on the goodness of the people that are in my lives, the, the sort of concrete sort of people around me. Um, and actually, the Stoics just just give us fantastic concrete practices for this. So you can you know take their meditations uh, or sort of take inspiration from these little aphorisms that Marcus Aurelius was writing in his uh, journals, uh, and maybe write your own. But that sort of practice for me uh, has had a profound impact on just constantly sort of quieting my busy mind that's you know focused on you know uh, just a million different directions at work or you know in the social life or whatever it is, and it just helps me to sort of come back to, uh, okay, wh- what are the things that really matter? And what are the things that I want to spend my time and energy and, and mental energy on every day? Mm. Ancient wisdom for the modern world. This is a remarkable book. And I just like to kind of ask my guests toward the end of our discussion, uh, what, what do you really hope readers will take from this book? And uh, as this lands uh, in the universe and people are going to be opening opening up and taking a dip in, what what were you, what will you be looking for, and what are you going to be working on next? So one of my biggest hopes for this book is um, that that it'll show people that philosophy isn't just for academics. It's not just for people you know who are, who are like poring over ancient dusty manuscripts. Um, for me, philosophy has been personally transformative. Like it, it changes my life. Uh, it's changed my life. It continues to change my life. And so I hope that this book uh, invites anybody into that dialogue that wants to be a part of that dialogue. Um, one of the, the sort of greatest moments in, in writing the book for me was sending a bit of it uh, to my mom and having her discuss it with a friend. So she and a friend read it. Uh, and the way in which they were... Um, you know, passionate about Socrates and passionate about talking about Plato and Aristotle. It just sort of, um, it gave it gave that spark uh, to these ideas that I think uh, are really powerful and important. The next thing that I'm thinking about uh, and working really hard on is uh, the question of work. So I'm teaching a class right now at Notre Dame hmm. uh, on work and the good life. Wow. This is something that my students obviously are thinking a ton about and caring a ton about. Uh, and so, and as a teacher, you know, as, as somebody who, you know, to, to some extent, you know, wants to see them flourish and, and, and wants to see their soul sort of shaped in the right uh, kind of way, um, diving deep into the philosophy of work and, and trying to figure out um, what ancient wisdom we might be able to find there. Um, that's kind of the next direction I'm headed in. For me, one of the things I hope readers take away, the book is, you know, meant to be, philosophy is meant to be fun. It's meant to be a joy to do with other people. It's like one of the best parts of our nature if these philosophers are to be believed. So we hope, I hope people will read this book and think, oh my gosh, I love these kinds of questions. And philosophy is still being done right now to help us figure out our crazy, busy, hectic lives in a very strange period in the human story. Philosophy is going to be part of what makes our our lives that we are now living 
extraordinarily meaningful and helps us access that meaning. For me, going into the new year, I work a lot with uh, these really wonderful undergraduates, but I also work a lot now with other faculty members and trying to help people, my colleagues here at Notre Dame and at other universities that I work with, trying to help the academics uh, reignite this idea that we are still thinking really seriously about what it means to love the truth and what it means to have the right ideas about um, social justice and uh, what it means for us to really appreciate the profound role that religion plays in so many people's lives. Making those questions feel really alive again, especially as our universities reopen after the last two years and we start to realize that we need so much more diverse, hard, critical thinking about the kinds of philosophical puzzles that the world is dealing with right now. Um, and so I, I see a lot of my work in the next few years is trying to translate what the undergraduates have caught on to really quickly to, uh, to something maybe the adults need a little bit more help to, 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 to rediscover in their lives. Yeah. I can tell you that I started this book feeling a little intimidated and found it absolutely enriching, enlightening, and a great deal of fun. Um, there's, there's just a good mix of weight and levity, and I really encourage everybody to pick up a copy of The Good Life Method. My guests today are Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. They are professors of philosophy at Notre Dame University. And again, their newly released book is titled The Good Life Method. Megan and Paul, it was really wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you for joining Real Fiction. Thank you, Lori, and thanks to all your listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. been listening to Real Fiction Radio, a production of Real Fiction Media Group. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. You can also head over to realfictionradio.com where you can find more information about today's guests. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening.